Dotnet Rocks episode 804 with guest Ian Felton. Recorded live Friday, September 7th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell, and uh, we're back. Hey, Mr. Campbell, how are you doing up there in Vancouver? I am working my buns off, actually, because, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to a road trip. There is. And uh, this is the seventh, so this is a about a, what, a week and a half before we leave. Yeah, something like that. Well, leave you leave. You're coming to me. Right? Yeah, Our first right. stop's in Vancouver. Yeah, my leave is earlier than your leave. Right. <laughs> so so I, I, I'm glad you're coming to see me. I'm really excited we have a couple of stops in Canada. 34 stops. .netrocks.com slash roadtrip.aspx. If you're interested, that's exactly where we're going. Uh, you can find all the details there. And also, uh, subscribe to my tweets, at Carl Franklin, if you want updates. Yep. And what do we? What's the hashtag we're using? Uh, hash DNR road trip. Exactly. So uh, we'll we we'll try to keep the buzz. There's actually going to be a website stood up by the time you hear this show that shows where the RV is, the tweets that are going on, all that good stuff. So uh, uh, you'll be able to keep track of where we are and what we're up to the whole way across. Better know a framework. Hit me. You better. What do you got? Well, this is more like better know Visual Studio. Oh, I uh, like it. We have a new Visual Studio, and as well, you know, the keyboard shortcuts maybe yep. have changed a little bit, I'm thinking. Maybe uh, maybe a few new ones added. So really? you can look at the Visual Studio keyboard shortcuts at tinyurl.com slash vs2012keyboard, and that brings you right into the predefined keyboard shortcuts in Visual Studio 2012, and you can also make your own keyboard shortcuts, which is kind of cool. You can customize it. You know, this begs the question, you know, what the life of products like Code Rush and Refactor and, and, and you know, uh, all of those things are with more and more of the stuff seem to be built into studio. Yeah, I don't know. I think I, I think there's still there's nothing like those kinds of tools, just code and code rush and things like that. There's nothing right. like those in Visual Studio. But, you know, this is just sort of shortcuts for all the stuff that you can do with the menus. Well, a long time ago, I discovered that the keyboard was way faster than the mouse for sure. doing just about everything. So the power users, especially coders, I think, use the shortcuts just because it's faster and we're already using the keyboard. So there you go. They're all there. Cool. So who's talking to us, Mr. Campbell? You know, I grabbed a comment off of show 783, and that was the one we did at NDC with Hattie Hariri. Yep. And just, you know, his whole conversation about, okay, MVC, here's the sort of pure form. Now let's talk about how you actually get stuff done. Right. There's a real world approach. And Chuck Conway totally bought into Hattie's approach because he says, finally, someone who is speaking some sense. Hmm. As a software consultant, I often walk into shops and see two approaches to data access. The first is the stored procedure or bust approach. Right. The reasoning is typically ORMs take control away from the DBA. All right. I'm sure your DBA loves writing single statement stored procedures. Mm. 
The second way is the ORM all the way or the highway mm-hmm. approach. And these guys and gals refuse to use store procedures. Store procedures are viewed as a relic. Right. When faced with a problem that screams store procedure, a SQL solution is crafted and stored in the ORM's XML configuration because XML is a better place for SQL than the database. Mm-hmm. It was great to hear someone. I just, I'm trying to convey Chuck's sarcasm. Oh, uh, yeah, you're doing it's, it. It's just dripping off the page. It's hilarious. Absolutely. And he says, it was great to hear someone say how it is. I hope you have Hattie back on the show. It was a pleasure listening to him. And I'm totally with you, Chuck. You know, we're all folks who actually have to build the software. There's no one right way. I do not believe in ideals. And, you know, you've got to deal with the realities in front of you. Sometimes the store procedure is the answer, and sometimes you can let the RM generate what you want. Yeah. So, I didn't have to agree with you to send you a mug. I just had to read your comment. And I happened to agree with you, so I love sending you a mug. So, a mug is on its way to you, Chuck. And if you'd like a mug, write a comment on the website at dotedrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses a month. They have a free 10-day trial, 200 minutes of access to the library, and a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much everything Microsoft, Windows 8, HTML, JSON, JavaScript, jQuery, you, you name it, they have it. Uh, try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce Mr. Ian Felton. Ian's interest in technology began at the age of 15 when he started building PCs, broke open a Turbo C book, and installed a C compiler on a 286. After learning Pascal and ADA in college, he added Perl and JavaScript to his tech skills while working as an intern on an educational project for NASA. Lately, he's been focusing on polyglot programming, database thaw, RESTful APIs, and CQRS with Erlang. Erlang. He now has 14 <laughs> years professional experience writing software while working on global initiatives for the U.S. Department of Defense, Thomson Reuters, Mylan Pharmaceuticals, U.S. Bank, Train, T-R-A-N-E, and many more. During this time, he's become an expert on website accessibility, educating and training executives on the topic. In 2008, he started a nonprofit to aid public school ban programs in distressed counties of Appalachia, where he's from using technology that he's passionate about to help raise awareness of an issue he cares about has really created meaning in his life. Welcome, Ian Felton. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We have been talking a lot about the importance of, well, sort of just about the brain and about psychology on .NET Rocks a lot lately. And uh, I'm no... uh, well, what can I say? I'm 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 no stranger to that topic, especially where music education is concerned. At a very young age, uh, it's almost criminal that it's that it's not uh, a part of our daily life. Yeah, I mean it's uh it's something that that helps kids in multiple ways. Obviously, you've touched on brain development. That's one one significant uh, benefit of music education. But then there's also the social aspect as well. Um, and then particularly in rural areas where there might not be a lot of opportunities other than what the public school system provides, kids who 
can be in band, it gives them a way to socialize. It gives them a way to be a part of something where otherwise they might not really have an outlet for socialization. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, where should we start? We have a lot of topics to cover. I, I, I love this idea of the nonprofit, but, um, let's, let's take it back to, to your work with Erlang. Yeah. We did a show with Brian Hunter on Erlang and we're schooled. I think is the word Richard and I would use. Isn't that the word you would use? Yep, pretty much. To, you know, totally different kind of language, totally different kind of way of thinking. You know, industry-built language, not academic builds. Like it's it's a whole other can of worms, really. How did you get involved with Erlang? I'm surprised. Well, actually, I have to blame Brian Hunter for blowing <laughs> my mind and giving me something to spend a whole lot more time on than what I have available to me. It's um, I was at that conference in Wisconsin Dells in early August, and I saw his talk. And when he demoed it, I was just completely blown away. I had just seen Dan Normington's talk on CQRS earlier in the day, and when I went into Brian's talk fresh out of Dan Normington's talk and saw what he was proposing to do with it, I just thought, wow, I have got to learn this and I've got to get started working on this. So um, I'm currently working on some products for nonprofits that I'm building, and I'm essentially looking at using... Erlang and CQRS to make the product more scalable. So in the first release, it's not going to be available because I still need to get up to speed and get a much more thorough understanding of Erlang and applying it correctly in this scenario. But for scalability, it just seems like a great way to go. So he completely geeked me out on that. So yes, Brian Hunter's fault all the way. That's funny. I was also very impressed at how it makes up the entire telecom industry. Pretty much all the telephone stuff is written in Erlang. Yeah, I had no idea. Um, and then just thinking about the the phone networks, and then you would think that it would be intuitive to apply it to scalability um, with a web app, but I don't, I don't know who decided to start doing CQRS with Erlang, but if it w- uh, I'm, I'm assuming it was, it was Brian. I don't know how he came up with the idea. Did he talk about yeah. that at all in, in his talk? No, at the time. And we've done a show on, on CQRS and just being the acronym police, this is command query responsibility segregation. We did a great show with Udi Dahan about it. You know, he's been driving this pattern for years, but I never, really thought in terms of why Erlang would have an advantage working in CQRS. Maybe you can clarify that for us because I never conjoined the two before. Well, I think a lot of it just goes down to thread overhead. So right. in a .NET thread is going to uh, instantly be one megabyte, where with Erlang, it's it's essentially one, one K. Um, I think there's a little bit difference physically as far as what a Erlang thread or processes versus a .NET thread, not just the size difference, but I think also the way that the Erlang runtime manages that. I don't want to speak too um, professorial on that because I, 
I don't have a real deep understanding of it, but that's essentially how I understand it. And so when you are in the database and you have an object that might have tons of events associated with it and tons of objects and you're trying to hydrate those and run through the the events to get them up to their current state and then you're doing that on a website that's getting tons of requests being able to scale that out over multiple Erlang threads, you have a much lower overhead because you have the the 1K overhead versus the 1 meg overhead. Mm. So for hydrating a whole bunch of objects um, running through their event history rapidly over multiple Erlang processes, is there's going to be a much lower overhead than trying to do that with .NET threads. Your um your nonprofit that you started, I I take it that the the story here for our listeners is all about the technology that went in behind uh, the website, I guess, and the and the system involved. Can you tell us about that? Well, for me, being able to have a nonprofit that it's 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 kind of the playground for me technologically because the website itself doesn't have a huge amount of um, performance demands or or scalability demands. So I can use it as a place to write production code that I don't have to worry too much about um, the the performance of it or how much it scales. So, for example, when all of the .NET Visual Studio, uh, back when it was 11, when it was in beta and everything else was still in in beta version, I was able to start building the next release of my nonprofit site using that. So I used Visual Studio 11 when it was 11 before it became 2012 Mm -hmm. and um, used the uh, MVC for beta, um, Knockout JS. So... I was able to write production code using technologies that I want to get early adopter experience with writing actual production code, but not um, doing it in a, in a really high risk environment where um, if there were problems or significant changes once it goes from beta to release having to have a very expensive refactoring or other problems. So essentially for me, it's a nice safe playground to experiment with the technologies that I really want to learn about, but do it in in a production environment. I think it's a great model in general. Um, You know, typically you you hear about, uh, you know, students in college, they do a project, you know, and they may go out and make a bogus website that sells silly stuff or, or whatever, just, you know, some bogus project. But why not uh, hook up with a nonprofit? I'm not saying developers should, you know, start their own nonprofit organization. Maybe that's an idea too. But what a great idea! A great way to take somebody who has a need for a website and uh, sort of use it as your uh, experiment lab. I'm with you 100 percent there, particularly on um, not feeling like you have to be so motivated that you actually go out and start your own organization. There's tons of organizations that have already gone through the process of um, setting it up officially with the IRS and all of that 
um, administrative work that is somewhat involved and um, that sort of thing. But being able to find a nonprofit locally that deals with a cause that you care about, there's so many places that would love to get that type of of aid. Usually, your software is a very high expense, and if a developer approached a local nonprofit that they cared about and just said, hey, I would want to offer my, my services and we can talk about your needs that you have with um, your website or, or different. It doesn't even have to be a website. It can mm. be internal software. But, but yes, that's, that's a great, great way to go about it as well. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for ones suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to telerik.com slash .NET decompiling. And remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Have you ever done a give camp? Have you played in that arena for doing charity work? I haven't, just because I'm I'm incredibly busy with my own nonprofit, and right. if when I have extra time, that's what I put my time into. I think that they're a great idea. Um, I love seeing um, how many places are are doing it now. It seems like there's many urban areas where they're popping up. I think it's spot on. It's the exact type of way that developers can give back um, using their skills. So instead of volunteering, um, doing something that maybe isn't development related, I'm not discouraging that, but it's just so many nonprofits have a huge gap between where they're at and where they could be technologically that definitely donating your developer experience can be what a lot of places need the most. And has the nonprofit turned out to actually be helpful? Yes. I I'm very happy with the the effectiveness of the organization just based on a few years of um not a whole I mean I work full time as a consultant, so it's not like I, I have all day to just push um the nonprofit needs. So essentially it's in my spare time, which, you know, it, it varies. There's sometimes where I'll be working on the nonprofit in my spare time primarily. And sometimes it takes, um, a backseat depending upon what else I have going on at sure. the time. But, but I like to measure it in years of opportunities that the nonprofit has given, um, children and, these distressed counties of Appalachia that I'm targeting. So, for example, 
Last year, we donated 25 instruments to 14 schools and the counties that we work with in Appalachia or Appalachia, depending upon mm. which part of the region you're in. People say it differently, and it is amazing. There, there are some people that are, are um, sensitive to the way that you say it, but sure. there are two, two fairly common ways of saying it, Appalachia or Appalachia. People in the southern part of Appalachia tend to call it Appalachia. Yeah. People who are further north and Appalachia tend to say Appalachia, but both are legitimate ways of saying it, and it's it's more of a cultural, regional type of pronunciation. So you've definitely changed at least fourteen lives there. Well, and well, it was it's actually twenty five instruments and fourteen schools. So, and that oh. was just la- last year. So I also kind of I estimate well, if the lifespan of an instrument is let's say it gets five years of use, which I would like to think that they would get more years of use than that. But just trying to make a conservative estimate, 25 instruments times five years, that's 125 years of opportunities um, just in one year's effort. So I have absolutely no no complaints about our effectiveness and, and what we've been able to do. And there again, it's first and foremost, the network of Marching Mountains is first the band directors who are in these areas teaching these kids who have taken the initiative to sign up with the organization because they want their kids to have more opportunities. And then equally, the people who find the organization and want to donate an instrument that maybe their child played in high school or junior high, and they've gone on to college, and they don't need it anymore. So they pull it out of the closet, and they give us a call, and uh, we either go and pick it up or they ship it to us. But somehow it gets from us to the school that needs it most. That's actually what the app that I wrote this year is a way for the band directors to go to the website and they can select from categories of musical instruments, and then they can select their top five most needed instruments and then arrange them in order of priority so that that way it's very easy for me to take a look at our instrument inventory and match it with the school that needs the most. So it's not just like we're just shipping Mm -hmm. the instruments off. We um, use this ability for the band directors to push their needs to us, and then we can just reference that. So when it's time to distribute them, we know who who needs it the most. So if if we have a trumpet and there's a band director that has a trumpet in their number one slot, they will get priority. Um, you know, if 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 we have five clarinets and sure there's five schools that all have clarinets in their list, then they'll each get one, and we just we use that to assess. Um, what place needs it the most. So is it primarily a website or are there, you said there are apps, are there apps for mobile devices too? No, it's a, it's just a, it's a web, a desktop web app right now. There's, there's Mm -hmm. not really, I don't, I don't think that the, the scope of the organization right now would require any type of mobile app. Maybe someday it could, but I, I don't, I don't see the organization needing to scale to that extent where people would actually need to use a mobile app to 
um, arrange their priorities. But I mean, if if we had you know hundreds of band directors involved instead of you know fifteen or twenty, it it might be something where if they if if we had that type of volume that they would want to update it on the go or more regularly. I guess that could be possible, but at the moment there's there's just not a need for it. So, and you said you're using uh, Entity Framework on the back end. What's your data store? It's SQL Server, mm-hmm. and and I was I was kind of uh, laughing to myself when you were talking about the, the intro about um, the the reader comment about um, store procedures because not mm-hmm. this wasn't for Marching Mountains, but for the product that I'm making. There actually is for nonprofits. Um, that was just that was one scenario that I just. One problem that I just had to solve was um, I'm I'm using entities and the uh, entity framework handles most of it, but I did just wire up a couple of stored procedures through entity framework to hydrate my models. So I'm all I'm all on board with using the right solution for the approach. So yes, I'm yeah. I'm using entities, but then I'm also wiring up stored procedures to them. So were there any other technologies that you used or tools that you used besides that? Any third-party tools? Um, nothing's coming to mind off the top of my head. It's been a few months since I released that, and I've been working on some of these other services, so I can't recall right off the top of my head if we used any other third-party tools. I'm, I used Unfuddle for managing the project, which was you you can link in a a git repository and you can manage your milestones and your tickets and that sort of thing and that that's been incredibly useful for smaller scale projects and just for a low cost being able to manage multiple projects and a small number of users so um there was a developer on the contract that I was on and he helped me out for a couple months and he did a little bit of coding here and there. So I just signed him um, access to the Git repository and he was able to get in and do some entity mapping. And um, he had a, a big background in BizTalk. So he was very good about going in and defining um, some of the middle tier layer and um, looking at refactoring some of the controllers so that they were um, cleaner and that sort of thing. So he was able to help out for a little while, and it was nice being able to just give him access to the Unfuddle repository. And Did you use the cloud, um, or are you using your own box? Right now, I, it's hosted on Discount ASP. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I, I guess the, the amount of traffic that the project gets, there's no real need at the moment for it to to scale um, out. Um, I am looking for some of the nonprofit services that I'm making. Um, I have played around with App Harbor a little bit, and yep. that seemed very useful. So I don't know. I, I'm definitely going to be deploying my nonprofit services to some cloud solution and app harbors probably my my leading choice at the moment but um, I'd want to do a little bit more exploration in that area 
But, and I think, you know, you haven't got a terrible scale problem here. You know how many marching bands there are in Appalachia. I imagine you're in reach of all of those. Yeah. I mean, even on, like, like I said, this is something that just for, for the app, the way that it is right now for a band director, even if the, I think we sit, we sent out letters to 300 and some schools. If every mm-hmm. single one of them would eventually sign up, if they went on the website, at the beginning and the end of the school year to arrange the instruments that they needed the right. most, you're still talking about as far as band directors, it's it's not a lot of, of traffic. The the traffic would be more on the donor side if we even if we were getting thousands of instruments donated a year, you're still looking at overall traffic that's probably less than you know, a hundred or two hundred visits per day. So, I mean, scaling out it would I can't imagine ever be an issue for marching mountains. Well, and, and I think the bigger challenge here is actually the other side of this: finding the donation sites. Like, who's got instruments to give away? That to me is a sort of broader reach. You're just looking for folks in the communities, right? Well, I mean, we we've had people donate instruments from um, Washington. We've had people mm-hmm. donate them from Chicago. Um, we get instrument donations from around the country. It's people who see the the special um, need in these areas. I mean, not that there's not needs in urban areas and certain public schools and sure. all kinds of places, but sometimes this uh, Marching Mountains project resonates with people who are in Texas and they ship us instruments. So, um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, marching bands are their own thing. I I've come to appreciate that they, there's a real dynamic to building a marching band as opposed to, uh, you know, all music is good and, and generally playing in a group. I, I used to play in the symphony in school, uh, tuba, right? And I was a beneficiary of an instrument, by the way. I don't know if I ever told you this, Carl. I knew you played tuba. Right. I played tuba. Well, guess what? Tubas are about, even when I was a kid, they're like seven thousand bucks. Yeah, they're not right? cheap. Like it's a lot of brass, and I never had to buy a tuba because oddly enough, not a lot of tuba players around. But it was some school that had a tuba not in use that basically let me use this t- the uh, tuba in junior high, and then it was followed me to senior high too. I played the same instrument all the way through, but purely from the the generosity of others. I, mean, I never owned a tuba, and I, I never could. It's a lot of money. I got a geek tuba story for you guys. You ready for this? Uh-oh. I'm ready. Um, last night, I ran into a, a guy I had met recently, re-met, but originally when I was 12 years old, um, I was taking piano lessons, and my piano teacher invited him over to give us a lecture. Apparently, in the late 70s or early 80s, he was at the Mystic Aquarium when they got their first beluga whale, and he took his tuba, and he played what he thought was you know beluga whale sounds on the tuba (laughs) to the whale and the whale went nuts like absolutely went crazy and it it got like a big erection which was visible to everybody (laughs) nice the whale just went berserk right so he thought he had something here so he learned the sounds of the humpback whales and went out into the uh, atlantic with his tuba and would speak to whales to move them out of nets and things like this. Now, I don't know if he actually has the vocabulary down or what, but uh, he says that in, um, you know, around the Caribbean, 
the whales down there they sing for mating, but uh, up uh, up here in the northeast anyway, they're they're more for feeding. And so he would, you know, when when a whale is feeding, it would sing. And so he would pl- put his tuba down in the water and, you know, kind of like, hey, the food's over here. And they would move away from the nets and things. So, and I guess he was on the, his name is Gary Buttery. He was on Johnny Carson, I guess, at one point. Uh, it was kind of a big deal. So I asked him if he had these videos and he said he had them on, you know, VHS. So we're going to try to put them together, maybe put them up on YouTube. It's a really great story. Interesting. And total geekosaurus, right? Yeah. <laughs> Be well, it's all trying to speak whale is a whole other concept right there. Yeah. Hey, Carl. Yeah. It must be that time. It's that happy time. My favorite time. Yeah. So it's time to give away uh, a Telerik Devcraft complete collection to awesome. a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And today's winner is Ross McLean. Ah, congratulations, Ross. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Ross. And he he wrote back and said, oh, my God, this is the best thing to happen to me for years. I feel like a teenage girl. Why are there never any around when you want one? (laughs) Okay, that's wrong. Ross, you're not that young anymore. Totally wrong. We have teenage daughters. I know. He says, awesome, just plain old awesome. Uh, Been listening to DNR for years. Love it. Can't wait for the road trips. He's from Northampton in England in the UK, so... Golf awesome. clap to you, Ross. And if you don't know what we're talking about, we give away stuff every show. And uh, every December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of technology. And we've gotten into this habit of asking our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? Any thoughts, Ian? Hmm. Wow. Well, I, I mean, the first 2000 I could... I could make pretty quickly. I'm I'm in the market for an ultra book. Um, oh yeah, somewhere but somewhere between the the Samsung ultra books are looking pretty good. The series nine is beautiful. Yeah, three point six pounds, and you know it's got i seven eight gig of RAM um, SSD, just very very good specs and they're about $800 less expensive than the Mac equivalent. And right. so, and I think it's even maybe a little touch lighter. Mm-hmm. So I, my, my first, and I think they're, they're going for around 1800. So I would probably um, shell out the first 2000 on a Samsung Ultrabook, and then the remaining three thousand, I would have to think about. Maybe a big TV monitor. Sure, sure. Yeah. Why not yeah. something with HDMI? Because the Ultrabook's got HDMI drivers yeah. built in. Yep. So, but you know, this is the challenge. It's not you can put together a five thousand dollar package, but trying to get five thousand is a funny number. There's yeah, not like one thing that fits that spec. Well, I think a real high end laptop, we could probably get there. Probably, but even still, it's really the accessories and the accoutrement that. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. That make it, you know. Um, who is it? Alan Stevens said he wanted a recording rig. Yeah. You know. Hey, you know, I I put together recording studio PCs for people all the time, and uh, you know, it's about that. I could spend. Yeah. I could put together one for five grand. We can make a couple options available. Anyway, 
let me uh, let me yank this in another direction a bit, Ian. I'm, I'm going to get maybe I don't want to be harsh, but I want to focus on I think a challenging issue around this, and I, it, it's a concern for me with Give Camps and with charity in general, which is how do we keep this thing alive? You know, it's one thing when you spend a weekend writing some code or, you know, you've now built this app and it's at a certain state, but, and I'm not saying you're going to get hit by a bus or anything, but at some point you're not going to work on it. How does it keep functioning? Well, since I've actually created the organization, um, part of that is you, you by law have to form a board of directors because this is, it's a, it's a legal entity and it is bigger than one person. It's a it's an organization. So I have a board of directors, and I have confidence that if something happened to me, that they would vote in someone else to the board, and that they would keep it going, even if it was just um, maybe wouldn't have the same software development resources it has with me working on it, but, um, they could at least keep it, keep it alive and keep the website running and keep getting the instruments to the places where it needed to go. But like I said, obviously that, that isn't, um, always the case with, with people who just want to volunteer. Um, and, and that's where being tied in with an existing organization is your next best bet because that way the organization should be keeping itself alive and it shouldn't be dependent just upon you as an individual for um, writing software for it, for it to keep going. Now, I don't know how the give camps work as far as what types of relationships are formed um, during those events and then how much developers are still working with the organizations once the give camp is over. Obviously I would encourage anyone that if they're going to to do a give camp and, and write code for it to hopefully still be open to working with the organization once the give camp is over because it's, it's kind of, I, I just, I start thinking about, um, you know, when we're looking at instrument donations, we want people to to give us instruments that are in good working condition because if you give us an instrument that needs repairs and then if we would give it to a band program that's already struggling, we didn't really give them an instrument. We just gave them another expense. Yeah. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. You know, I think the next nonprofit that needs to be written is a website that links up nonprofits with developers who want to 
you know, or or would be developers who want to cut their teeth on a project and don't necessarily feel that it warrants getting paid for. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, and and something like that could be very easy to do. I mean, it, that doesn't have to be anything complicated. It could just be almost like a Craigslist type of sure. deal where nonprofits can just go in and post a, a need, and then with their contact information, then developers could just go in and um, yeah. sign up. But I also think it's just simple stuff like keeping your code in GitHub so that other people can pick it up and work on it. Mm-hmm. And I, but I'm also concerned that, you know, most of the charity folks I met, they're not technical people. Like you need someone that's deeply tied to the charity that has some sense of the technology. You don't have to be a programmer, but at least it's going to be when that programmer has to go away for whatever reason, has some hope of what it takes to hand it off and, sure. and that it needs to be maintained. I think an awful lot of people have this sort of mystical view of software. And then he waved his wand and a website appeared. Right. You know, we need to get past that. Yeah, and that's how I wanted, was tying um, as far as the donations to that because if you volunteer, you know, for a few days and you create this technical creation that is mm-hmm. designed to help them, if you give that to them and they use it and then you just pull away and now there's this gap and chasm, well, in a way, you've just created a, a new expense for them. You haven't. Mm, right. I mean, it's, it's helpful in some ways. I'm not trying to discourage people from doing it at all. But in in other ways, you, you've just handed them something that now they have to maintain and don't have the resources to maintain it because you handed it and then walked away. And like I said, I'm, I'm not discouraging anyone from helping, but that should be a consideration. Yeah, I think there's a commitment here to say if you're going to provide some technology to a charity, be committed to sustaining it for at least some block of time beyond just the initial writing. I agree. What was the NASA project you worked on as an intern? It was called Live from the Sun. So I wrote a a Perl CGI Ben app that allowed NASA solar scientists to do a live Q&A with students who were participating in the project, again, called Live from the Sun. So it was a, it was a very cool internship. I was able to um, write this app and then demo it to the scientists and then do a, a conference call with um, several NASA solar scientists and they gave gave me feedback and mo- most of it was was encouraging. <laughs> there was I remember there was there was one scientist and she was just she was not happy with the software. She she said, I quote, this is not good. <laughs> 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 but then her cohorts were very encouraging, appreciating that I was an intern and it was my first web app and you know tried to calm her down a little bit and and we ended up you know using the the software and it it worked and it was successful and they were able to do the live q and a with it so so it was it was very good it was a lot of fun how long ago was this ian but ninety eight so fourteen wow. years back yeah, I just I I did a search for Live from the Sun and found a NASA site called Live from the Sun, which I think was last updated in two thousand three. Yeah, it changed hands. It went from 
a NASA project to, I think, a private company picked it up once their funding for it ended. And I, I haven't followed it in recent years, but I know that it kind of moved around. Sure, but it's amazing how long software persists, mm. too. Like, this looks archaic even for 2003, the styling, and just it's, it's old school web. Yep. Hey, if this URL had GeoCities in it, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact that it, it was written in, in Perl in a CGI band, I mean, that kind of says it all. Yep, yeah, it sure does. I mean, we didn't even use a an, an RDBMS. We used a flat file that was just uh, double colon delimited. Yeah, some of the first stuff that I wrote on the web was CGI bin Perl. Yeah, those are the days. I remember Perl I, reminded me of a cartoon character swearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's how I felt a lot of the times. <laughs> <laughs> It was good that it looked like cursing because that was right. Yeah, it's sort of that has that uh, regular expression feel to it, just more symbols yeah. than data. Yeah, exactly. So, what's next? What's next for you here? Um, well, first, before I forget, I definitely want to thank Alan Stevens for hooking this all up. Um, I had just met him at that conference, and I was talking a little bit about accessibility and this sort of thing. I don't know how it's come that I have such a focusing so much on the human element of technology. I, it's not contrived. It just seems to be what, what happens for yeah. whatever reason. I, I want to make money as much as everybody else and want to be successful, but I, I keep coming back to some of these themes like accessibility and mm. um, nonprofits and that sort of thing. So right now I'm working on some services for nonprofits. Um, just I'm, I'm getting ready to start a new consulting contract. So I'm trying to get um, some, some velocity there so that by the time I go back to the 40 hour a week gig that um, the majority of, of it is done. So I'm, I'm working with nonprofits and, and uh, some nonprofits locally in Minneapolis and working on some prototypes and demoing it to them to get their feedback and, and find out, you know, the viability for how much this will actually help them yeah. in, in the market. Um, so working on that. Let me bring it back to your polyglot programming for a minute. There's a, when you say polyglot in your world, does that mean mixing functional, you know, say Erlang with the uh, procedural language or more, you know, say C sharp, an object oriented language rather? Yeah, we can take it back to the theme that you were talking about in the beginning, which is actually using the correct solution yeah. for the problem at hand. And so, you know, early in my career, I think a lot of developers are the same way. They they latch onto one framework, one way of doing something, and then you use that for everything, even if it means fighting massive amounts of overhead just to accomplish whatever it is that you're trying to do with it because mm -hmm. you're trying to do everything mm -hmm. with it. So, yes, in this particular situation, I see eventually my... Um, solution involving, um, again, knockout 
in the in the views, um, and then C sharp entity framework um, for the reads. But then for the writes, um, hopefully the app will need to scale to the point where I can use CQRS and, and Erlang, and then that would be what I would hope would be the appropriate solution mm. for that. So, yes, a, a system that uses multiple languages and runtimes where appropriate to solve that particular problem the yeah. best way. Yeah, that's that's an enlightened view. And uh I like the exa- the particular examples that you're giving here seems to fit nicely. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> it's still a theory. Yeah. Have you played with F sharp at all? I haven't. I honestly I haven't even written a line of code with it. How about how about Link? Do you use Link a lot? I do. Um it's still um, something I, I feel very comfortable with, but I, I still feel like I, I would like to make some more improvements in, in that realm. But I use it extensively in my repositories. Pretty much the whole repository layer is just link statements. Yeah. It's great, isn't it? And we just discovered link to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> How does that work? Uh, it's, it's a, a, a link, you know, query it's queries the the Twitterverse. Okay, yeah, you basically use it, you know, because Twitter is highly searchable and queryable. So that's basically essentially what you do. You write a you write a link uh, a statement and uh, query it, query it up. <laughs> sounds very useful, and it sounds like if I got started with that, that I would see several hours of my day quickly vanish. Oh yeah, that's a time sucker. A time vampire. Is there anything else that we've missed that you wanted to talk about here, Ian? I mean, I think it's been a great conversation. I think I think we've covered the the vast majority of it. Again, it's just I, I can't I can't emphasize enough how important I think it was for me personally to find something um that meant something to me that I understood to to be involved in. So in other words, there's tons of causes, there's tons of people who are recruiting people to help them, but anybody who wants to look to give back, I mean, BAM programs in Appalachia, that was something that I understood. I had a personal understanding of it. I knew how it helped because I experienced it. So I would encourage anyone, if you actually want to be involved in something, think about something that you are passionate about. And by passionate doesn't mean that, you know, you, um, you know, have to, you know, give up half of your life to be involved in it, but just something that you actually understand that mm. you feel a connection to. It's not some abstract concept. Like, right. you know, I'm, I'm all for, the environment. I'm all for tons of of issues and causes, but by selecting something that I actually experienced and had some connection to, it it becomes a lot more meaningful. Because then, when I think about 
the kids who are getting the instruments that uh, Marching Mountains is providing to them, in a way, it's kind of a reflection back on um, another aspect of myself, and then I feel a lot more of a relationship to the cause. So I think that's that's a very important thing to consider. And then the next, just again, if you are only using one technology and and want to explore the bigger world of programming languages that are out there, if you can combine the two, so find some way to expand your programming horizons while at the same time exploring some of the parts of yourself that have um, a deeper meaning to you. I, I think it's a, it's a very good combination for someone who is a passionate developer. Yeah, certainly is. And if we get any message from this, it's, uh, you know, uh, there's plenty of opportunities for you to do something good and learn at the same time. Yeah, it helps you. It helps your career. Um, helps your fellow man. It, it, yeah, it just, there's, there's plenty of ways. For example, um, I know tons of people who play MMORPGs, and I have played many, many hours myself. But as, as involved as you can be with those, I don't, I don't care how good the graphics get. Life has way better graphics. Yeah, it sure does, man. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, life has plenty of drama, plenty of graphics, plenty of beautiful things to look at. There's no need to escape it. And this organization is kind of like my own real life RPG, so, you know, it's like there's the people in the village and you've got to go talk to the people in the village and they give you clues to who to go <laughs> talk to next and you've got to gather this resource and you've got to do so in a way, for me, having this organization has been a lot like a real-life role-playing game mm. where you know I'm playing the role of nonprofit guy, mm. and um, <laughs> it's just a – it's much more interesting. And if I'm up till 2 o'clock in the morning writing code for the nonprofit, I don't wake up in the morning saying – wow, I can't believe that I was farming gold till two in the morning yeah. and for what? Yep. For absolutely really nothing. Right. And so if I've got some old instruments in my closet, where do I send them? You can send instruments if you want to send them. And if they're in good working condition, you can send them much closer to the source to Marching Mountains at 1449 and more avenue just like it sounds and more morgantown west virginia 26505 and that is um where we have instrument ships because it's in appalachia so it's much closer um to get them to the schools it costs um you know the organization shipping costs are our biggest expense because i I volunteer all of my time and everything else, but we do have costs as far as getting instruments shipped. I Last year, I shipped a drum kit to a school in Kentucky, and unfortunately, we, we probably won't be able to do any more drum kits unless someone wants to pay to ship them directly. It was a $300 cost 
for oh. the organization just to, to get it shipped. So we're much more in the market for trumpets, trombones, saxophones, clarinets, flutes, um, smaller instruments that cost us less to get to um, the schools and ones that are much more commonly needed. But mm. like I said, if, if you have a drum kit and you want it to go to one of these schools, I can um, connect you with the right school. And if, and if you're that giving and you want to, to ship it directly there, I can definitely arrange that. And you can always go to marchingmountains.org to contact me. Fantastic. Ian, thank you so much for your for, your, for just talking to us for this hour. We, I learned so much and it's it's a great lesson. I'm glad that you think it has that much value. I, I definitely you know it does for me personally. So if other people um, feel like they could achieve the same thing in their life, then it's definitely been worth the time. All right. And we'll see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, floralpsych.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Floralpsych.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.